James chapter 1 is where we are this morning, verses 12 through 18, and I wanted to read that to us. So James 1, verse 12, this is God's holy word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Last week, we began a new summer sermon series going through the letter of James, the book of James. And the theme of, the, of this letter of James is that of divine heavenly wisdom. And as we began with chapter one last week, we talked about how we can gain this heavenly wisdom. And one way in which we can gain wisdom is to endure hardship, is to go through difficulty in life, is to endure the trials that God sets in store for us. In verse two, I want to remind you from last week, James wrote, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is getting at here is he's saying that God gives us trials in life uh, to help strengthen our faith, to help grow us in spiritual maturity. Not perfection, but the word perfection here is that of maturity. And God strengthens our faith as we go through trials. Uh, a trial can be that of suffering. It can be that of being persecuted for our faith. It could be that of, of going through poverty or even riches. Uh, it could be that of, of physical illness or ailments. Uh, no matter what, uh, God gives us trials to strengthen our character and to build our faith. And so as we look at verse 12 this morning, James finishes what we talked about last week by saying, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's a positive way that we can look at trials that God gives us, and that is character building. That God gives us difficulty in life for us to endure so that we can grow in maturity in our faith. And as we grow in our maturity, one day we will have a crown that is given to us in heaven called the crown of life. As you read through the New Testament, you'll learn that there are five different crowns that we can be given in heaven, and one of those crowns is crown of life, the crown of life. In James' day, you would have these athletes who would compete against one another, and instead of ribbons or medals that, that we get today in, in, an Olympic, uh, in Olympic competition, they would give laurel wreaths that they would literally put on the heads of the victor, of the winner. In the same way, James is saying, Christian, if you endure hardship, if, if you continue to persevere uh, through difficulty and you remain faithful to the Lord, one day you will be given that crown of life in heaven for all of eternity. And you are blessed. You are happy in the sight of the Lord as you do those things. 
So James is wrapping up what we talked about last week in verse 12, but he's making a connection with verse 12 to verses 13 and 14 when he uses the word trial. Because the word trial in, in Greek is that of paresmos, paresmos. And when you look at verses 13 and 14, you see the word tempt. It's a very similar Greek word that James uses, and that is parezo. It's the same root word. And James does that intentionally because he makes a connection between the word trial and the word temptation. The word trial in verse 12, again, is used in a positive light. So that as we go through hardship, we grow in character. That's a positive way of looking at trials. But there's also a negative way in how we can view trials, and that is a trial that can lead us to temptation and then lead us into sin. And that's the direction James is now taking us in verses, verses 13 and 14 when he said, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There's a right way to respond to trials, and there's a wrong way to respond to trials. The right way to respond to trials is that of seeing it as character building, as how God is calling us to be steadfast and to persevere and to grow in our spiritual development. The negative way in which we view trials is that of temptation and seeing our trials as Temptation, where it leads us into sin and we begin to point the fingers and we even blame others and God himself. I like what Kent Hughes says about this passage. He says there's a source of temptation and there's the course of temptation. The first thing we're going to see here is the source of temptation. And James says that the source of temptation is not God. Again, when he said, let no one say I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. God is not the source of our temptation because God is not evil. He does not love sin and he cannot be tempted with sin. He's untemptable. And because God is good, there is no bad thing in him and he does not tempt us into sin because he's good. And so what is James saying here in this chapter one? Well, first he's saying that for God's own good reasons, he sends trials and tribulations our way he intends these for good that we might mature and become stable. Our tendency is to become angry and spiteful at God as he uses our tribulations, as we use our tribulations as an excuse to sin. And then we begin to think like Adam did, where we begin to point the finger and we blame others. As I think about temptation and I think about when we sin, what is our natural inclination? It is to pass the buck. It is to blame others. I like what the late Will Rogers said. He said that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. One, someone said, to err is human and to blame it on the divine is even more human. To err is human and to blame it on the divine is even more human. Let's face it, we don't like to take personal responsibility when things don't go our way and when we do wrong. But instead, we like to point the finger. We like to blame others. And this is normal because it happened in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and with Eve. When sin entered the world, what did Adam do? But he blamed God and he blamed Eve. In chapter 3, verse 12, it said, The woman you, you gave to me to be with, God, 
She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice what he said here. He blamed Eve. Well, she's the one who led me into sin. Then he said, and it's the woman you gave me. God, I want to remind you that you gave me this woman, and look what happened. It's because of you, God. And then what did Eve say when God confronted her? He asked her in verse 13 of Genesis 3, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate So what did Eve do? Oh, oh, no, God, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. Satan deceived me. So here it is, Eve, she blamed Satan, and worse, Adam blamed God. That's our natural tendency. And as I think about it, I think about how easy it is for all of us to blame those who ever are in leadership, whether it's a football coach, a principal, it could be the president of the United States, now, I will say there are a lot of decisions that <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree to and agree with that our current administration is doing, but at the same time, we are to honor and pray for them and him. But it's easy for us to say, well, it's leadership. It's leadership. That's the problem. But yet, are we looking within ourselves first? We need to be quick to look within ourselves first and take the blame and responsibility first. And that's what James is getting at here. He wants to make sure that believers know that we don't need to be quick to pass the blame, but we need to blame ourselves. That's why he said in verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We are tempted when we're lured away and enticed by our own desires and not by God. It's us who are responsible, not God. You know, I was looking this week at a couple examples, and one of the examples that I wanted to mention was there was a football coach named Bill Curry. He coached Georgia Tech years ago, and it happened to be his worst and last season at Georgia Tech. He could not win a game. And for most of the season after the losses, the post-game conference, Bill Curry would say, I take the blame. It was a, it was a coaching issue. We didn't coach and prepare our players well enough. We didn't make the right, game, the, the right calls in the game. I take full responsibility. Well, it was like the second to last game, and they just got beat horribly. And this time, Coach Curry (laughs) said something differently. He said, you know, this whole season I took the blame because I'm at fault. But he said, I have to be honest today. The players did not show up. They're the ones who screwed up. We did everything we could as a coaching staff to prepare them, and they simply did not show up today. Well, it's funny because three days later, Curry gets interviewed once again, and he said, You know, that comment I made back Sunday afternoon, I ended up getting a call the next day by Bear Bryant. And Bear Bryant, he spoke to me like a father would to a son. And he said, Coach, Coach Curry, I don't ever want to hear you blame the players again. He said, you as the head coach always must take responsibility. Because after all, you're the one who recruited the players You're the one who develops them and coaches them on a daily basis. You're the one who makes the calls in the game. He said, as the head coach, you, my friend, must take responsibility when things go poorly. And by the way, when things go well, you give your players the credit, not yourself. That's true coaching, and that's true leadership. Curry admitted he was wrong, and he said, I was taken to the woodshed. (laughs) I bring that up because that's what James is doing here to you and me. He's saying, don't pass the blame onto someone else or something else. 
take it yourself. Take it like a man and a woman and take it. Now, you may have noticed here in James 1 that James did not mention Satan as the tempter, as a source of temptation. He also didn't mention the world around us as a source of temptation. He primarily focuses on ourselves, our own individual flesh. He does it on purpose because he wants to hone in on that point to make sure that we all understand we are responsible when we sin. At the same time, as you journey through the letter, you will see that James mentions that Satan is indeed a factor when it comes to temptation. Chapter 3, verse 14, he said, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I love this verse because it reminds us when it comes to temptation and sin, there's really three things that play into it. There is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's exactly what James wrote in verse 15. He said, selfish ambition and jealousy does not come from above, from the Lord. No, it comes from three sources. That which is earthly, meaning the world around us. That which is unspiritual, meaning our own sinful nature, our flesh. And that which is demonic. So James does mention later in his letter that the world and Satan are both factors when it comes to temptation. The world around us tempts us all the time. And Satan himself tempts us and tries to take us down. That's why later in James 4, 7, James wrote, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Satan, he tries to take us down. He tries to tempt us just as he tempted Jesus. At the same time, though, what James is trying to get at is, even though Satan and the world around us can tempt us and, and even tempt us into sin, it's, it's our own selfishness, our own sinfulness that leads us into sin. We can't be like Flip Saunders who said, the devil made me do it, because Satan didn't make us do anything. He doesn't coerce us. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't control us to do evil. No, we are responsible. I like what G.K. Chesterton, he wrote, when the New York Times interviewed him, they asked him a the question. They said, Pastor Chesterton, what is wrong with the world? Do you know what he wrote back? He wrote back and said, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. That's the point James is making here. The source of temptation is us. We are at fault, and we cannot blame God when we are tempted and we give in to sin. So that's the source of temptation, but what about the course of temptation? Let's go back to verse 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I mentioned last week, and you're gonna hear this a lot this summer as we go through James. James gives a lot of different illustrations, analogies uh, to, to make his point. And in just these two verses, he gives us three different illustrations to help us understand the course of temptation, how it works. He gives a hunting illustration, a fishing illustration, and he also gives giving birth as an illustration. So first he mentions the hunting illustration, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured, lured by his own desire. The word lured in Greek is exelko, 
which has the meaning of being dragged away as if you're compelled by inner desires. It was often used, this word was often used in the hunting context when it referred to a baited trap designed to lure an unsuspecting animal into it. So I know some of you like to shoot and hunt. For those of you that like to do that, and if you have ever used bait to attract the prey, you know what this is like. You put something there to entice the prey to come to it so you can have a good shot. That's what temptation does. It disguises itself, and it brings us in. It lures us in, just like bait in a hunting trap. The second analogy that James used is that of fishing. Verse 14, he continued on. Each person is tipped when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The word enticed is delazio in Greek, which was commonly used as a fishing term that referred to bait. On the shores of Galilee, the word enticed meant caught by bait. And I know a lot of you like to fish in this room. Now, I'm an amateur fisherman, but I know that you never, when you ever get, you go fishing, you never, you never cast out a line with, an, with a hook that's empty or naked. You always put the hook, you always put bait on the hook to attract the fish to it. That's how temptation works. It's like that of a bait on a hook that lures the fish to it. And when the fish comes, the hook grabs a hold of it and it lures you away and, and, and drags you away and entices you. So as you think about it, this is how the flesh, our sinful nature, works. It's like the hunting analogy and the fishing analogy. It's disguised as something attractive, alluring, and it brings you in. As I think about these two analogies, I think about marketing today. You know what I'm talking about. You can watch commercials, and it could be about a Coke, you know, a, a drink, a soft drink, and and what do they do with that, that cup when the, the Coke is poured into it? You see it, you hear it, you hear the fizzle coming up, and then you watch it just go down the, the, the glass, and you're thinking, I want, a, I want a soda right now. You know, I, 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 I do like doing this, but sometimes it makes me want to give in. It's when you drive by, I think it's the full-service barbecue on Kingston Pike, what do they do with that cooker outside? They, they cook it so that you can smell it. And it brings you in and you want to get that barbecue. Buddy's Barbecue does the same thing. I love going to Buddy's. I smell it. I'm like, oh, I want some of that. And I'm making a lot of you hungry at it now, and I'm sorry. But it's that smell that brings you there. It, it makes you want it. The same way with any other products. And oftentimes they use, they use sexual innuendos to draw you in. No matter what it may be, you look at it and you think, oh, that looks interesting. I want to go buy that. That's how temptation works. It disguises itself. It deceives you and it brings you in, it lures you in. And James is reminding us, be careful. Be careful as you're living the Christian life because temptation will have its way. It will seize you and grab a hold of you and drag you away into sin. And the third analogy James gives is that of giving birth. Look again at verse 15. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There, there's two ways you can look at this analogy. You can look at it as temptation, desire being that of the grandmother giving birth to the daughter, sin, and then sin giving birth to the granddaughter, death. That's one way you can look at that passage. Another way you can look at it as you can see that desire is being conceived now in the womb, 
and sin is growing just like an embryo grows and expands quickly, so sin will grow in you. And then instead of giving birth to life, you give birth to death. Now, my wife's been pregnant four times. I remember that third trimester was brutal for her because the baby grew and grew and grew quickly. It expanded, or he or she expanded quickly and became very uncomfortable. In the same way, James is using that birth analogy to say that's what sin does when it gets in you. It grows and grows and grows quickly and it multiplies. And then you're dead meat. It gives birth to death and it drags you down. This is why James said in verse 16, strong words to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived that this is from God. Do not think that God is the one who's leading you astray and leading you into sin. Do not think that that others are leading you astray. It's you, my friend, that's being led astray. Do not be deceived. So now that we know the course of temptation, we know how it works. My, My question here is, how do we fight the flesh? What do we do in this daily battle against our sinful nature? Because we deal with this every single day. And I absolutely love how James finishes this section with verse 17 when he said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If God is not directly responsible for producing anything evil, then it logically follows that what he is directly responsible for creating or giving can only be good. The goodness of God. God is good all the time. And all that he gives us is good. He gives us good thing after good thing after good thing. And even as you might be enduring a trial right now and you're thinking, how is this any good? I'm here to tell you from the word of God that God is doing something that you may not know yet, you may not see yet, but he's up to something good because all he is is good. And because God is so good, he doesn't change. And that's a great reminder to us all that God doesn't change. I like how James referred to him as the father of lights. This was a a Jewish term that they used in the Old Testament to describe God. They described him as the father of lights, the the great creator of the constellations and the the stars and the, the moon and the sun and the planets, the solar system, how God put everything in its place and in order and everything was good God is the father of lights. He is the one who created the lights, and he set these things in motion. John MacArthur, he compared the lights that God created to God himself, and this is what he said. He said, there's a difference between the lights God created and God. The lights change. The sun rises, and our shadows fall long to the west. It stands high at noon, brightening all, and as it sets... Shadows are out to the east until they fade into nothingness. Day and night, light perpetually changes. The moon waxes full and wanes to a crescent. Light is reflected and refracted differently moment by moment. Stars, according to their different light and position, have various shadowing. 
The nearer the sun is to us, the less shadow it casts. The farther off, the greater the shadow. So we know the sun's movements by its different shadows, but with the father of spiritual lights, there is no shadow of turning. He doesn't change, but always remains the same. So God created the lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky. And although the lights change, he does not. Our shadows can come and go, but God is always with us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, God said, I, the Lord, do not change. Theologians call this how the term immutable, the immutability of God. He does not change like shifting shadows. Why does that matter to us? It matters so much because we know God is good and he's good all the time. He doesn't change. He's always good, even in the midst when it appears like our lives are going out of control. God is in control, and he is good. You know, the, the best example of God's goodness to us, James finishes in verse 18. He said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Of his own will, of God's own doing, he brought us forth by his word, meaning he changes us. He changes our hearts of stone and he implants a heart of flesh. And now we have new desires. We have new affections. We have a new heart. We have a new love for Christ that gives us purpose in this life. The word first fruits was used in the Old Testament to describe during the time of harvest what God's people would do is they would take the best portion of the harvest of their crops and they would present it to God. They wouldn't give God the leftovers, they would give him the first fruits. They would give God the priority, the very best. In the same way God is saying that out of all my creation, my people, I've chosen you as my first fruits. You are mine. In the New Testament, the word first fruits refers to that of God's people. It refers to that of our union with Christ. And so again, the greatest gift that God gives us, his people, is a new heart. And he gives us the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are united with Christ. And because we're united with him, we now have these new desires and we can follow Jesus and say no to sin. You know, God, single, he just single-mindedly gives us good gifts. And so we, in turn, must single-mindedly focus on him and follow his word and to do his will. That's how we are to approach our Christian living. I've heard some of you say this over the years, and it's God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. This week, I was, I was researching this phrase and, and seeing if there were any hymns, and there's a great gospel hymn where a gospel choir has sung it, and it goes like this. It's called God is Good, and it says, my God is good all the time, all of the time. My God is good all of the time, all of the time. My God is good all of the time, all of the time. If you're a father, you need to know this. If you're a mother, you need to know this. If you're a child, you need to know this. If you're a teacher, you need to know this. If you're a student, you need to know this. If you're a man, you need to know this. If you're a woman, you need to know this. If you're a worker, you need to know this. 
God is good all of the time, all of the time. God is good all of the time, all of the time. God is good. So do you want to fight temptation? Well, the first thing you need to do is remember that God is good all of the time. He is good. And he doesn't change. You know how the flesh works. It attacks our minds first. And then we begin to work an appetite. And then it gets to our heart where we just have these affections and we want to we wanna then sin and then we cave into it. Our will gives in to its consent. You know what we have to guard first when it comes to temptation? Our minds. And the best thing we can do to guard our minds as we're tempted is we can be reminded of the unchanging goodness of our God, that he is good all of the time, all of the time. Corey Tinboon, she gave an example. This was right towards the end of her life. Corey Tinboon, she lived in the days of Nazi Germany, and she was thrown into a concentration camp. And she said, often I have heard people say, how good God is. We pray that it would not rain for our church picnic. And look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. And you know what she said to me? No, Corey, no. God has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Corey ended up writing, there is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone. May God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstance. God is good all of the time, all of the time. And if you're finding yourself in a really difficult time right now, Instead of looking at it in a negative light, pointing the blame at God and letting that temptation lead you into sin, I would encourage you to look at it in a positive way. Be reminded of the unchanging goodness of God and know that God is up to something in your life. He's doing something for you. He's refining your faith. He's strengthening you. He's building your character. And so again, be reminded of verse 12, that blessed are those who are steadfast, for they will receive the crown of life.